Well, it's here. Christmas is right around the corner, exciting, fun, wonderful time of year. And I do uh, know that one of the things that I uh, get concerned about this time of year is that many of us have heard the story so many times it has become routine. And yet I hope and pray that for us, each of us this year, myself included, that we can see it with fresh eyes in a way that really moves our heart to greater affection towards the Lord. And so uh, I pray that the Lord might use His Word to stir that within us as a church family. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at some familiar verses beginning in verse 26. So if you want to follow along with me. You can do so. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now as many of you know, Luke is an historian. He begins this gospel account by telling his intent of giving a very detailed account of the life of Christ in chronological order from eyewitness testimony. And in these first two verses, we can kind of get a picture of his attention to detail. First, he says that there was a specific time. He says, in the sixth month. Now, from the context, if you were to have read the preceding verses, you will know that he's referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, and she's pregnant with who will become John the Baptist. At a specific time, God sent a specific angel named Gabriel. This is actually the same angel that not too long before this spoke to Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, explaining to him that his wife, who is previously barren, unable to have kids, will soon become pregnant. Gabriel is one of two angels named in the Bible. And from this account with Zacharias, we know from what he tells uh, Zacharias that he stands in the presence of God. So this particular angel is sent at a specific time to a certain location. It was a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, I'm sure that the angel Gabriel was quite an impressive sight, but the region of Galilee was not. (laughs) This is a farming community. The landscape was covered in crops. These people were hardworking, blue-collar, but nothing special kind of people. When we were in Israel, Doug and Kimberly will remember this. Uh, This is probably my favorite place we visited, and the reason is, is it kind of felt like home. When you would drive through the, uh, the roads of Galilee, it was kind of like driving down a rural road in West Texas. There were crops that blanketed both sides of the road. The biggest difference was that for us, when we see those crops, we see row after row after row of cotton. Or if you're up north in the Panhandle, you might have corn. But in Israel, you would see cotton, 
right next to corn, right next to almond groves, right next to banana farms, right next to any variety of crops. I've never seen so much diversity in agriculture in all my life. It was spectacular. But what I want you to see here is that even though Luke is very specific, this place is really not all that special. Nazareth is a farming community tucked away in a rural countryside of Galilee. And and within this nondescript town was a girl named Mary. Now, once again, because of his attention to detail, Luke gives us some important information about Mary. First, he says that she was a virgin who was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. It's important to understand that marriage in that ancient culture came in two very distinct stages. The first stage, which is where we find Mary, is what's known as the betrothal or the engagement. What took place at this stage was that two families agreed to allow their son and daughter to be married. There was actually a written agreement, a marriage contract that was signed between these two families saying so. And so that contract was binding. In fact, they were considered legally married at this point. And you would actually have to have a divorce to get out of the contract. But the marriage ceremony and the actual consummation of that marriage wouldn't take place for at least another year down the road. So based on the cultural norm of the day, we know that this typically takes place when that young girl named Mary was about 15 years old. So she was just a teenager. She's engaged to a man named Joseph. And according to Luke's description, he was a descendant of David, which will become increasingly important as the story continues. Look at verse 28. And coming in, he, Gabriel, said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement. And kept pondering what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now I want you to know, whenever you read scripture, it's very important to pay attention to any of the words that are repeated more than once. In our time, we would put those kind of words in bold print, okay? The biblical authors would repeat words of special importance that they didn't want you to miss. So, for example, if you go back to verse 27, Luke describes Mary as a virgin engaged. And then, at the end of the verse, he says that the virgin's name was Mary. So, apparently, it's important for us to know that Mary was a virgin, that she had never been intimate with a man. As you look at these next three verses that I just read... There's another important word. In verse 28, Gabriel greets Mary by saying, Hail, favored one. And then again in verse 30, he says, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Luke is putting the word favor in bold print. He doesn't want us to miss it. In the original language, that word favor would mean the object of grace. Favor means the object of grace. So Luke is saying that Mary is the object of God's grace. She's uniquely chosen. 
according to God's sovereign initiative. Not because of something that she did for God. (laughs) Keep in mind, she's 15 years old. She hasn't lived long enough to be all that impressive. This is not about what Mary has done for God. This is what, what, what God will do through this young girl named Mary. This farm girl from a little rural community who has become the object of God's grace. Luke says that when Mary was approached by the angel, that she was greatly troubled. And we read that and it makes perfect sense, right? You and I might be a little bit unsettled if the angel Gabriel showed up in our bedroom one night. But I want you to look closely at the text because I want you to notice she wasn't alarmed by the presence of the angel as much as what the angel had to say. Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of greeting or salutation this might be. Mary was troubled by this greeting from the angel. Gabriel told her, he greeted her by saying, Hail, favored one. And Mary couldn't understand why. She was troubled by her own inadequacy in the presence of divine favor. That's why Gabriel encourages her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you, again, he says, have found favor with God. I think what Gabriel's saying here is, don't be afraid, Mary. You are covered by the mercy of God. You're favored, not because of what you will do for him, but because of what he will do in you. Don't be afraid, Mary. You're the object of God's grace. Now look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Gabriel now goes on to explain the miracle that will soon take place. The miracle that Mary will conceive a child even though she was a virgin. And and at this point, Gabriel doesn't explain how it's going to happen. He just explains who. He tells Mary, you will give this child a name and you will name him Jesus. Now, names in that culture were incredibly significant because they spoke to a purpose, a, a, a design, an intent. And that name Jesus means Savior. It describes the purpose for which this child would be born. Jesus, the Savior. And he goes on and says, and he will be great. He will be different. He will be set apart. He will be unlike anyone else. In fact, he will be called the Son of the Most High. That's because if Jesus is not conceived by the normal biological process, he must have a heavenly origin. A fact that will be affirmed by his divine nature. A nature that is validated by his power over sickness and disease. His power over nature and ultimately his power over death itself. He will be set apart 
the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. In fact, you can go as far as to say when you see Jesus, you see God, the Son of the Most High. Gabriel goes on and says, and Jesus will have the throne of his father David. So Jesus will be the Son of the Most High by virtue of his miraculous conception, his divine nature. He will be the son of David by virtue of his lineage through his father, Joseph. Now, remember, Luke's already highlighted that Joseph is a descendant of David. Gabriel says that Jesus is not just a descendant of David because he was not born from a relationship between Joseph and Mary. It was an immaculate conception. He was a descendant of David by the lineage of that family. And he didn't come just to be a part of that lineage. He came to fulfill the ultimate Davidic covenant, that promise of God. I want us to look at that together. So turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's go back in the Old Testament. Joshua judges 1 and 2 Samuel. I want us to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 together. This is where I believe the promise of the Son of God and the Son of David, they kind of merge into one within this context. So read with me, beginning in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Bold print, forever. Now this is a little bit confusing because we're picking up a conversation right in the middle between David and the prophet Nathan. Now what's happened at the beginning of this conversation is David has gone to Nathan and says, I want to build a house for the Lord. And he had just completed his own palace and he looked across the street to the the tent of the tabernacle and said, that's not going to be good enough. We need to build something better than my house for the house of God. And at first, Nathan heard that and said, David, that's a good idea. You should do what's on your heart. But then the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, but that's not my plan. And he instructed Nathan to then go to David and tell him, to tell David, you will not be the one building a house for me. Instead, I will be the one building a house for you. Nathan goes on to explain this prophecy, and when he does, he kind of explains this dual fulfillment of how this will take place, because part of the prophecy will be fulfilled in David's lifetime. He will have a son. His son will be named Solomon, and Solomon, as we know, will become an heir to David's throne. And God promises to be at work in Solomon's life. He will guide him. He will correct him promises that he will never forsake him. 
Unlike what happened with Saul, where he took that lineage from one family line and moved it to another, God says to David, that will never, ever happen again. The lineage will continue through you forever. It is a kingdom that will have no end. Well, the only way to establish an eternal kingdom is through a descendant who has eternal life. Jesus born of heaven, son of God, will fulfill fulfill the promise as a descendant of David and will rule from an eternal throne. As you might expect, this is a lot for a young teenage girl named Mary to take in. Look at how it continues back in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. In Luke chapter 1, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and she will and she was called barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. After all that Gabriel described about who would be born, Mary's only left with one question. How? How? How can I have a child if I've never been with a man? Gabriel explains, the offspring will be a work of God made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's where we continue to see the evidence of God's grace, where God didn't look upon this young teenage girl and say, boy, there's a lot holding your shoulders, young lady. (laughs) Literally, the whole world is in your hands. The hope of the world is up to you. But that's not what he said. In fact, he said just the opposite. It's not dependent upon you at all. Because the power of God works beyond the limitations of man. And what may be impossible with you is not impossible with God. And to help put her mind at ease, God let Mary in on a little divine secret. In order to affirm her promise, the one that he had just made to her, he tells her about a promise fulfilled with her cousin, Elizabeth. I get the sense that Mary and Elizabeth were more than family, they were friends, and very likely they had talked about the desire that Elizabeth has had for many years to have a family and has been unable. Maybe they prayed together. Maybe they wept together. But whatever the case, the angel tells Mary that the prayers have been answered and that Elizabeth is pregnant. In fact, she's in her sixth month. So if you want to see it for yourself, You can go look and see that she is with child. Now look at how Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I read this and I think, what an incredibly humble Response, But I don't want us to to miss the magnitude of her surrender. 
Mary submits to the will of God even though there's no logical explanation. Knowing that there will be a lot of pain to come and this decision will ultimately cost her because as soon as she starts to show, the ridicule will begin. (laughs) She'll be ridiculed because she's going to be accused of having been unfaithful. That's the only logical explanation. She's a woman who's pregnant with a child. There's only one way that can happen. She's not married yet. She's been unfaithful. How's she going to explain this to Joseph? What's she going to tell her parents? It's a ridiculous story. How's anyone going to possibly believe what she has to say? But I want you to notice. Mary is not concerned about anyone believing her word. She's putting her trust in God's word. Be it done to me according to your word. I look at the story of Mary and her response of faithful obedience, and I think, what an amazing example. But I also think if you look at the testimony of Scripture, it's less of an exception and more of the biblical norm when somebody encounters the living God. Let me give you an example. Turn back in the Old Testament. This time, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. So go to Psalms and turn right. Song of Solomon, Isaiah chapter 6. This, again, is a familiar passage, but I want you to notice the correlation with what happened in Isaiah's life and and connect it to what we see in the life of Mary when she encountered the angel Gabriel. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now I want you to keep that picture in mind and then transpose over the top of that the encounter that Mary had with the angel Gabriel. Like Mary, Isaiah also had a divine encounter. He said he found himself before the throne of God. Mary found herself before an angel who stands in the presence of God. Like Mary, he was troubled by his own depravity. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mary, too, was troubled by the greeting. 
how could she be favored? Like Mary, he was covered by the mercy of God as that angel took the coal and touched his lips, symbolically communicating to him the forgiveness of sins coming directly from the throne of God. And in the same way, the angel spoke to Mary and says, don't be afraid. You're covered by the mercy of God. His grace is upon you. And in both cases, upon hearing and encountering God in this way, they each responded with complete surrender. Here I am, send me. May it be done to me according to your word. And I want to suggest to you this morning that what is true of Isaiah, what is true of Mary, should be true of you and I. Because just as the angel spoke to Mary, the word of God through his scripture also speaks to you. Like Mary, like Isaiah, you are being pursued by God's sovereign initiative. Not because you're worthy, but in order to make you worthy. God's word reveals our sin. And we should be troubled by our own depravity. But we should be comforted by the promise of his mercy and grace. And the forgiveness that is found through faith in his son. See, where Isaiah had the coal, we have the cross. That's where our sin is removed. Paul tells the Ephesians, as we talked about in communion, in him, in Jesus, there is redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which has been lavished upon you. So just like Mary, you need to understand you are the object of God's grace. You have had an encounter with who God is through the word of God himself. And I think our response should be the same. Complete surrender. Here I am. Send me. Let it be done to me according to to your word. And remember, as we see through the story of Mary, God's not limited by your inadequacy. He will equip you for whatever he has called you to do. There's nothing you've done he can't forgive. There's nothing you've broken he can't restore. The miracle of redemption is a transformed life. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That's a promise. Just like Mary, you and I are the object of God's grace. And I hope that you find a great amount of comfort in that promise. Walking in the assurance of his faithful love with a heart of humble surrender. Here I am. Send me knowing that in his presence is where we find our strength. Because he's not limited by our inadequacy. (laughs) Nothing is impossible with God. So may we put our trust in him. So I want us to finish up this morning with the song that Brian introduced to us for the first time. And let me encourage us as we sing this song again to make these words into a prayer. Look closely at the message of the song and turn it into a 
heartfelt prayer as we finish up this morning. Let's do that. I want to remind you, when the angel spoke to Mary and comforted her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. I can with great confidence, based on the testimony of God's word, say to you this morning, Hail, favored one, God's grace is with you. God's presence is with you. He is for you and he will never leave you or forsake you. And you can walk out of this place with great assurance of that truth. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are with us. That's our hope. That's our comfort. That's our strength. So Lord, may we be reminded of that truth this morning and live in that truth every day. You are with us. You are for us. You will never leave us and you will never forsake us. We thank you for that promise and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.